Amen. Great to be with you this morning. We're going to continue through the book of Matthew. And we are really, really close to the end. Um, I think we might have two sermons left. If you can believe that. This morning we're going to talk about <clears throat> killing the king. Killing the king. Before we do, let's pray together one more time. Father, I just ask for help now, Lord, to speak your word in a way that honors and pleases you. I pray that you would help us, God, to feel the weight of this moment of which we speak, to recognize the gravity and the eternal import of what you did for us on that day 2,000 years ago, and that changed heaven and earth forever. So God, help us to see and feel what you've done for us this morning, in Christ's name, amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27, um, you know, um, as we begin, well, I, we're going we're gonna to jump into this sermon in just a second, but I thought it might be, uh, I, I maybe should have done this during announcements, but I'd just like to update you real briefly on uh, our committee and, and what's going on. Um, hopefully you've been reading the bulletin, and y'all been reading the bulletin, right? <laughs> and um, we're talking about um, humility, unity, clarity, and spirituality, and so please be in prayer. Please be in prayer. The committee's still working. Um, it's been a little bit more challenging than we expected to get quotes from people. And so we're still working on that. Um, and then um, we've also been um, looking at mergers, been reading some material, trying to think through some things about questions we need to be thinking about as we look into this. And we're going to be meeting with the committee from Liberty uh, next Sunday at 4 p.m. Uh, at Liberty. And so I just want to make you aware of that. I want you to, I want to ask you as your pastor, please continue to pray. Please make it a matter of urgent prayer. We, we need to bathe this thing with prayer. And uh, so I just wanted to update you on that. And if you ever have any questions about anything that's going on, please do not hesitate to ask anyone on the committee, including myself, and we'll be glad to, to, to fill you in. Okay, so this morning we're going to be um, talking about the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is the, the crucifixion and the resurrection constitute the two most important events that have ever happened in human history. And so the, the magnitude and the gravity of these events cannot be overstated. And there's lots of things that happened during Jesus' crucifixion that clue us into that, but you have to be paying attention to see it. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning as we talk about killing the king. Um, if you have a Bible and you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32, all the way down to verse 61. This is what it says. It says, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. 
And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Ali, Ali, lemas bakdani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The, <coughs> excuse me. The, term, the tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The word of God. We're going to look at this passage under three uh, headings this morning. Number one, the king's rejection. Number two, the king's vindication. And number three, the king's lamentation. So the king's rejection, vindication, and lamentation. First, we're going to look at the king's rejection. So there's a lot to talk about here. Um, there's a lot going on here. We're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. There's lots of details which are very fascinating. It says here at the beginning that they had to compel a man named Simon from Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross. Now, 
criminals who were being crucified typically carried the own the cross beam, the cross beam that would constitute the cross, uh, to the to the site where they would be crucified. Okay, now it seems from this passage that Jesus is so weak from the scourging that he received, and he probably lost a lot of blood, that he was not able to carry his own cross. That, and, and humanly speaking, that may explain why Jesus died so so quickly on the cross, because Pilate later was surprised to find that Jesus was already dead. And so they had to compel this man named Simon to carry the crossbeam. He was coming in from the countryside, it said. Now, Mark, uh, and Mark 15 makes this comment. It says they compelled a, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, that's fascinating to me because Mark, Mark is able, when writing his gospel, to identify Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus. Okay? Now, and the reason that's fascinating is because when you're writing a book like this that's obviously intended to be disseminated among the churches and for people to read, when you name people like that in such, in such a manner, kind of like in a side comment like this, Mark clearly assumes that people would know who Alexander and Rufus are. And so what Mark is, uh, and so what we, what we see from that then, and I think it's a little bit of speculation, but I think it's, um, I think it's very reasonable to think, to think this. That is that Simon of Cyrene, when he came into Jerusalem that day, and was compelled by the Romans to carry the cross beam for Jesus, Simon became a changed man. He, Something happened to him that day, and, and Simon later, we can imagine, came to realize the significance of what was taking place that day. Simon would come to realize that even though he carried Jesus' cross beam, Jesus was carrying his sin and was going to be punished for it. I mean, to me, that's the only thing that makes sense if two of his sons end up becoming well-known, prominent members of the early church. And so this encounter with Jesus almost certainly transform Simon. And it can transform us too. Now, it says when they arrived at Golgotha, they gave him wine mixed with gall. And probably, you know, there's, there's more than one way to look at it, but probably that's, <laughs> that shouldn't be viewed as an act of compassion, but probably it was another attempt of, at scorn from the Roman soldiers. Another attempt to scorn this man by offering a thirsty and dying man an undrinkable concoction. Matthew goes on to record that they cast lots for his clothing. And so all these little details are very significant. And as we've seen consistently, consistently through the book of Matthew, what he is showing us is that none of these things happen by accident. Even the greed of the Roman soldiers who are literally, you know, gambling for this man's clothes. Okay. Even though that was, it was of their own sinful will, it itself was planned by God in order to fulfill the scriptures so that after the fact, people might look back and look at the scriptures Look at what happened to Jesus and know that this man was the Son of God. 
That's what Matthew is writing for. He's not just writing just, you know, this whole book, right? It's not, it's not just an abstract exercise. It's not just the, the, uh, religious fancies of some guy. It's Matthew the Apostle, eyewitness to these events, writing this book so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And, and he does it, so, and he does it in a way so that we all know that it's fulfillment of scripture according to the plan of God. So that we would know that we're not to be looking for some other Messiah, which most people were. They were looking for a different kind of Messiah. We're to be looking for Jesus. Now, just about, so if you're reading this passage, it's remarkable what Matthew is trying to do here because it's, it's, it's painfully obvious that he is he wants us to see that the crucifixion of Jesus is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. We know that because, and Jesus wants us to know that too, because we, we read, and we'll, read, we'll talk about it a little bit later, when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus quoted the first verse of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, and so that invokes in our mind all of Psalm 22. By him quoting the first verse, we should we should call to mind Psalm 22. Now let me read to you a portion of Psalm 22, verse 7. Written, by the way, probably around a, a thousand years or so before Jesus. It says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb, you made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. I mean, my goodness. Like when you read that, and this is, so uh, that's the Psalm of David, I believe. And what, and what he's doing is he's, he's lamenting his own grievous circumstances. But what we see consistently throughout the Bible and throughout the New Testament is that as these new, te- as these authors of the Old Testament were writing what they were writing, the Holy Spirit was superintending the words that they were writing prophesying in ways that probably they didn't even fully understand to show us in the future that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. So so David was what? David was Israel's great king, the servant of God, a man after God's own heart. And but but what did this great king do? Well, he suffered a lot, right? He had to wander years on the run trying to be killed by by Saul, right? Before before he became the king. And what is happening here is that David, probably even more than he understood in writing these words, was actually prophesying of a, of, of a king greater than himself who would also have to suffer before he obtained 
his kingdom. And that's exactly what he's saying, down to the very detail. It talks about wagging the heads, which Matthew references. The, the religious leaders use almost the identical language, saying that if God really wanted him, if God really desired him, if God delighted in him, God would save him. The, almost the exact same language. They pierce his hands and feet. They divide his clothing for law, uh, uh, by, by casting lots. The, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the true and greater David. He's the true suffering servant. That, that, that nothing is happening to Jesus by accident. So we should pay attention to what's happening. This is the plan, the eternal plan of God being played out in the life of Jesus. So that all would know that something more than just a, than just an itinerant preacher who got on the wrong side of the authorities uh, and, and he was, and was killed for it. Something more than that is happening. Something of cosmic proportion is happening. Something that God had been planning from the foundation of the world is happening. You know, crucifixion in that day meant more or less that you were like the scum of the earth, basically. Right? Roman citizens, if you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't even be crucified. That, that was against your rights. They only crucified kind of these, these criminals and these people, the, the people that they really want to make an example of. And remember, remember that in the Old Testament, to be hung on a tree, which, you know, we typically think of like hung by a rope, but in ancient times, like in the book of Esther, for example, when it says hung, it, it most of the time means impaled or, 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 you know, impaled or something like that. So Jesus according to the scripture, by being crucified, was cursed of God. And most people, when, you, when they would see a crucified person, they would say, you done messed up. You done crossed the wrong people. And so, when, so people coming by and seeing Jesus, right? When you would look at Jesus on the cross... And you would see his wretched state. Many people would look at him and think, I know every, I, I know what I need to know about that person. Criminal. But what this is is a lesson for us, as it is for, as it was for the Jews of that time, is that we need to beware of judging things by mere appearances. Beware of judging people by mere appearances. You see Jesus up on that cross. A lot of people just could have said, what a, what a criminal. Now something more was going on. Beware of judging somebody's circumstances by mere appearances. You don't. People, what Matthew is trying to say, I mean, people just passing by, they would have said, I don't, you know, they could have made all kinds of assumptions about how Jesus got himself in the situation that they did, that he did. And what Jesus is trying to see, no. All this is according to plan. Even the circumstances in your own life. Don't judge by mere appearances. God has a plan. And so number one, we see the king's rejection. And number two, we see the king's vindication. And so Jesus here, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. Um. People think that he's calling Elijah because Elijah is based off of uh, El in the Hebrew Bible is um, means God, 
Eli means my God. Uh, it's, the, it's the beginning letters of the name Elijah. So he's saying my God, my God. But some people there think he's calling Elijah. Okay, so they, they're confused about that. Some, some of the spectators, after, he, after they think he's calling Elijah, they just want to hang back and see if some kind of crazy miracle is going to happen. So they don't, that's kind of shocking to me because like, they don't really seem to care about Jesus. They just want to, they just want to be there in case something crazy happens. You know, sometimes something crazy happens and all these people kind of trickle in just wanting to see what's going on. But then he cried and he gave up his spirit. And then it says the temple, the, the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Tombs were opened. People were raised from the dead. Even the centurion who was with them, with him said, truly, this was the son of God, along with the women there. So what we begin to see here is these events happening around the crucifixion. Again, Matthew is trying to get us to see that this is just not another man being nailed to a cross, which happened all the time in, in the Roman world. Something breathtaking world-changing was taking place. The first thing that we see was that there was darkness over the land. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? What does that mean? Why was there darkness all over the land? It was from the um, it's from the 6th to the ninth hour, which would have been from 12 to 3 o'clock, which is high day, right? It's the, the height of the day. And there's what? There's darkness all over the land. So clearly, something is happening. And remember, just the... Everything's so rich with symbolism, and so you just you got you got to ask yourself like, what what's God trying to say? Why would He say? Why would He do that? Right? Consistently in the Bible, darkness is a symbol of judgment. Now, if you've read the Old Testament and if you've read the prophets, what you'll see that a major theme throughout the prophets is what they refer to as the Day of the Lord. Now, the Day of the Lord is a day, according to the prophets. That would be a day of judgment on the world for its sin and simultaneously would be a day of deliverance for God's people, which makes sense there because if God is coming and punishing, you know, the evil, evil, then at the same time he's delivering those, his people who were oppressed by the evil ones. So the day of the Lord is a consistent theme of a day of judgment upon the world. And consistently, the day of the Lord is characterized as a day of darkness. Zephaniah 1.14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man, man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. And then the prophet Amos directly says that the day of the Lord, that darkness would take place at noon. It says on Amos 8 verse 9, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the mourning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, 
but of hearing the words of the Lord. So do you see what's happening there? That the prophets have this day characterized called the day of the Lord, and it's characterized by darkness consistently. And so, and Amos says there that this day of the Lord, where the sun's going to go down at noon, he says, he goes on to describe it as a time where there, where a famine will come on the land. Not a famine of bread or thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. So what, in my, so it seems to me what clearly is happening here by drawing on these images is that the, the, the darkness during the, uh, Jesus' time on the cross, I believe, was essentially God saying, this is the day of the Lord. N- not, you know, kind of a, kind of a, um, a, a proto day of the Lord, a, a first day of the Lord. And I think that's why it's so, I think that's why it's so mysterious. Right? That's why it's so mysterious because in a sense, there was the day of the Lord when Jesus died. And then in another sense, there's going to be another day of the Lord that comes when Jesus returns. Now, how does that make sense? Well, here's how I think it makes sense. The darkness represents God's judgment, right? So when Jesus was on the cross and the sun went dark, what is happening? The sin of the world is being judged on Jesus. God, is. it was a day of the Lord, but in a way that nobody expected. When Jesus died on the cross, God really was pouring out his wrath on sin. Just not on sinners. He was pouring out his wrath on Jesus so that he could punish the sin of everyone who believes in him so that they wouldn't have to endure the day of the Lord on their own. That's why the sky went dark, because God is telling everybody what is happening. I am pouring out my wrath on the sin of the world, on my son, so that those who believe in him won't have to endure the day of the Lord, unforgiven. That's what I think it means. He was judging sin. So, so, so then if you trust in Christ, your sin has already been judged by God so that when Christ comes back, you won't have to pay for your own sin. But if you don't turn from your sin and if you don't trust in Jesus, there's a day of the Lord coming. And he will return and he will pour out on every head. It's just do the wrath of God do sin of the world. So that's what that's what's happening. It's it's a it's a day of the Lord. Now, what about the tearing of the veil? What does that mean? Well, clearly you can't miss the remarkable detail that it says that the veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, remember in the in the the tabernacle and the temple, right? It was divided into two main parts. There was the holy place and then the most holy place, sometimes called the holy of holies, right? And so in the holy place, there was the lampstand, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and priests regularly went in and out of the holy place, putting the blood of the offering and the showbread and the, and the burning incense and things like that, okay? And then, but separating the 
holy place from the most holy place was a giant veil, a giant curtain. Now remember, this is this is it's it's a it's a very thick curtain. So uh, you know, imagine the the strongest, thickest comforter that you have, and trying to tear that with two hands, you just be impossible. Okay, and so this was a thick, thick veil. All right, that separated the two. Now, what was the difference? Well, in the most holy place, in the holy of holies, was where the ark of the covenant was, and in the ark, and the ark of the covenant represented God's manifest presence with His people. God said, "I will be with you. I will dwell with you. You will be my people, and I'll be your God." The 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 ark of the covenant represented God's manifest presence with the people. Only the high priest could enter into the holy of holies, and he could only do that once a year. On the day of atonement, when he offered atonement for all the people and he brought the blood of the sacrifice into the, into the to Ark of the Covenant and sprinkled it on the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And so, so what's, what's happening there? There's two ways to interpret. There's two ways to interpret what the, the rending of the veil means. And I think both are possible and, and maybe the ambiguity is intentional. Maybe both are true. Okay? The first way to think of it is it could be Yet, a kind of a climactic uh, sign of judgment upon Israel, right? Because it could be construed as God, because obviously God is the one who tore the veil from top to bottom, right? So God tears the veil, and it could be a sign of God leaving the temple. So remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesied of a vision, the crazy vision of the wheel, the wheels within wheels and eyes all around, the, the, the throne with wheels on it, and he saw the vision, and, and God was leaving the temple, and that represented what? It represented that God was leaving the nation, essentially, and that the Jerusalem would be destroyed, which it was by the Babylonians during, during Ezekiel's lifetime. Okay? Well, this could be a sign of God tearing the curtain, leaving the temple, prophesying a climactic judgment upon Israel, which Jesus himself said would happen. That is, that Jerusalem would be destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, a second way to, to view it, which I think is just as likely, is that Jesus, that the tearing of the veil represents the, that in Jesus' death, access to God is now restored. Right? So, remember, in the Garden of Eden, Jesus, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Jesus, we know, is undoing what Adam and Eve brought into the world, sin. In the Garden of Eden, when they sinned, God kicked them out of the garden and he put angels at the entrance to the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword so that they could not enter back into the garden, which I believe represents that they could, their sin has now separated them from God so that they could not know, because of their sin, no longer have direct access to the presence of God. Well, when God saved Israel and gave them the instructions for the tabernacle, he told them to create the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies and to put the veil in between there. And he told them that on the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place, they were to embroider angels on the veil. So when God, when God tore the veil from top to bottom, literally there were angels there. What did the angels represent? I believe that the angels represented that even in the temple and even in the tabernacle, sin was still separating us from the presence of God. Angels were still guarding us from the presence of God. And when Jesus 
died and the veil is torn, God is saying, Welcome home. You can come back now. Sin has been dealt with. I have done it. Jesus said, It is finished. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. And God is saying, The way is open. You can now come back to me, back to Eden, back to the way it was meant to be all along. And so, again, all these, the darkness, the veil, all these things is God's way of saying, look, I'm doing something unbelievable here. This is much more than a man dying. In fact, um, in fact, we even see resurrections take place. It's a little fuzzy about the timing of how all these things work out, but the main point, I think, is that what we see is that by Jesus dying and then and then at the same time other people rising, that's just God saying, God's just saying, here's what I'm up to. Jesus' death means life for others. And of course, that's that was just a precursor to the future resurrection that's coming. We're all, all will be raised from the dead by his power. So what are these? These are the king's vindication. These are the pointers, the, the, the things that vindicate that Jesus was the Son of God. Finally, number three, the king's lamentation. The king's lamentation. This is, this is Jesus being buried in the tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, um, they wrapped his body in a shroud, laid it in the tomb. Matthew makes a point of saying that Joseph was a rich man. Now, if you read the book of Matthew, unless it's, unless it's relevant to the story, Matthew isn't just pointing out the uh, economic status of everybody he talks about. Right. You, only, you only really point that out if it's relevant. So we have to ask the question, why would Matthew go out of his way? What does it matter that Joseph was rich? What does it have to do with anything? Well, unsurprisingly, it has to do with fulfillment of Scripture. Again, the most famous Old Testament passage that tells us that the Messiah had to suffer. Isaiah 53. And this is what it says, beginning in verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, two robbers, and with a rich man in his death, Joseph of Arimathea, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Resurrection. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. 
By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You know, just a side note there, that was written in the book of Isaiah. Clearly a prophecy of Jesus. And, and, uh, and even the most skeptical people who might doubt the, the, um, the ancient dates of the Old Testament books, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are the oldest manuscripts that we have, date to before the time of Christ. And we have almost a complete manuscript of the book of Isaiah. So there's no doubt that this was written before Jesus, before Jesus' time. And it says that he was, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, shall make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So again, this is another pointer in the mind of Matthew, which any Jew familiar with the Old Testament reading the book of Matthew would immediately call this to mind, and he wants us to see what is happening here. And as I close, I just want to look at that last verse there that's still up on the screen. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That verse is the gospel. That is what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus took unrighteous people and he made them righteous. That's the gospel. It says accounted righteous there because clearly that's what it, that's what it means. They're not righteous in themselves, so if, they're, if they become righteous, then essentially they must be counted righteous as a gift from God. Why? Because he bore their iniquities for them. This is the gospel. This was all part of God's plan. When we read about the crucifixion of the Son of God, we must remember that it was the greatest day in human history. That that for ages and ages and eons and eons, we shall worship him who in Revelation says has the appearance of the lamb that was slain. Jesus, you know there's a, there's a song that out that people love, Scar, Scars in Heaven. Jesus, look, we don't know, but probably Jesus is the only one in heaven who's going to have scars. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples in his glorified body that still had the scars. And he said, touch me. Stick your hands in the holes and in my side. I'm alive. Because of what Jesus has done, the righteous one, my servant, has made many to be accounted righteous because he bore their iniquities. So as we close this morning, I just want, just, just want us to reflect on the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is the heart of Christianity. This is how we are saved. And if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're watching online, you don't know Jesus this morning. This is what he has done for all who would believe in him. And if you turn from your sins and trust in him this morning, he'll forgive you. The way will be opened 
and you can walk right back into God where you belong. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather here and to worship you and to learn about what you did for us on the cross. Lord, you bore our sin. You justify the ungodly. That's me. That's us. That's everybody in this room. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And so, Lord, we worship you this morning. King Jesus, we give you the praise that you're due. Even now, Lord, as you sit at the right hand of the Father and are adored by angels who sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain, who was and is and is to come. Lord, let our praises this morning join in with theirs. For you are worthy for what you have done for us. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name.